Welcome to the Faith Lakeside Podcast. Each week you'll hear another great message that will help you know God and make Him known in your life. Join us each Sunday at 1045 a.m. and throughout the week in small groups to make the most of your learning experiences. Now, sit back, relax with a great cup of coffee and a notebook and enjoy this week's message. We are, of course, every Sunday here to know God and make Him known. And I know you're tired of hearing it, but uh, the, the thing is, is uh, statistics tell us that once we're tired of hearing something, we are still about a dozen times away from actually remembering it. Uh, so just uh, we reiterate why we're here every week, because we want all of us on the same page, unified, seeking to know God and make Him known. Uh, in other words, to be in deeper relationship with him and then inviting others to join us. We have begun this last couple or this last Sunday into the, the book of Revelation, the letter of Revelation. So if you have your Bibles, encourage you to open them up to Revelation chapter one. It should be in the Bible app as well. All of today's slides and the opportunity to take notes in the Bible app under events. And so let's, uh, let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we will dive into Revelation this morning. Father God, we thank you for today. We thank you that you have called each and every one of us here together today to be your family, your gathering, your called out. May all of us continue down the, the faith of discipleship and maturity today and in every coming day as we grow in, in knowing you and making you known. Would you open our hearts and minds to your word today? Holy Spirit, would you speak to us? We know that your word is meant not just for a nicety or a, a moral lesson where we can all smile and nod, but it, it's meant to cut us deep, to change us from the inside out. And so help us to learn today, Holy Spirit. Open this word and feed us from what is in its pages. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. So Revelation, we talked last week that Revelation is a letter to, uh, specifically to the churches in Asia Minor that was written by the Apostle John, likely somewhere between 85 and maybe even as late as up to 95 AD, 85 to 95. But the really critical thing to understand is this was written to a church in the midst of genuine persecution. Not they would refuse to say Merry Christmas at, uh, in the checkout line at Target, but instead you could lose your life for the sake of the gospel. You could be excluded from uh, making provision from your family and, and working in business for the sake of the gospel. And so persecution was genuine and real. And the purpose of Revelation is not to give us a roadmap to watch the news with and say, oh, 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 it just happened, but instead to serve as a reminder of God's sovereignty and his promises for believers. All of Revelation is rich and amazing with the sovereignty of God and how he promises life for all of us who believe on Christ Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And so last week we began to look at Revelation chapter 1 verses 1 through 8 and you, you I, I had to cut it short because I was only about halfway through the passage and we were already at time. So hopefully we get all the way through the rest of the passage today. But man, there's just so much here. I got to tell you, I'm, I, I'm learning so much as I read and study and prepare for these sermons because uh, you know Revelation has always been one of those those texts that while I have my viewpoints and opinions, I kind of keep it at distance when it comes to teaching because it's, um, 
everybody can can have really strong opinions about Revelation. And well, you're wrong. And so it's just like, fine, let's leave it alone. But it's time to dive in, folks. It's time to understand it. It's time to grab a hold of it because it's God's word for us. Revelation chapter one, verses one through eight reads this way. The revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Whatever he saw, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. The one who is, who was, and who is to come. The Almighty. Now, I, I guess you can maybe tell, just in reading this, it's just like, whoa, this is like worship music. This is high praise. And this is just the beginning of this letter. And, and just to, to quickly look at it and review it again, it, it reminds us that this, this letter, it's a revelation. And if you remember that word in the original language, the Greek is apocalypsus. And it means a, a revealing, an opening up, a, a showing us what is and revealing to us new things. And so uh, it's really exciting that we are seeing Jesus Christ revealed according to the will of the Father. And it's revealed to us through the, from the Father to the Son, through an angel, to John, to us, the church. And so we have this privilege to hear from the Father through the Son uh, according to what they revealed to John. And this letter is meant to be not something that is scary or unnerving, which is what too many of us read Revelation as. But instead, we are told right out of the gate that this letter is supposed to be a blessing to us. And that word blessing, if you remember from last week, it means happy, complete, fulfilled, how many of us, when we've read Revelation and we go to sleep, we have these terrible, horrific nightmares of beasts and dragons and, and like scorpions and it just, ah, you know, we've seen all the movies. We've seen the left behind. If you're old enough and you saw a thief in the night, you're really freaked out by Revelation. You know, a guillotine's coming for you, right? But, but that's not what this is about. It doesn't matter what we see in here. It is supposed to be a blessing for us. Something that lifts our spirits. Remember, this is written to an early church in the midst of severe persecution. And so to receive this letter, they were supposed to read it and hear it and obey it in such a way that it was meaningful and lifted them up. Not so they walked around with their heads down saying, oh, it's just going to get worse from here. And so we know... As we read Revelation, we should read it, we should hear what it says, and we should obey what it's teaching us. Now, in some passages, it's going to be a little more difficult. We're going to have to really draw out something to apply in the, uh, the coming weeks for us. Other passages, it's going to be very clear, this is what we need to do. 
And so as we move through the remainder of verses 4 through 8 and we look at at the rest of this, I, I want you to look in here with me and see what it is that you might read, hear, and obey. This is going to be our standard every week as we go through Revelation. As we read it, we want to hear what it says and find where we need to obey. Why? So that we can experience the blessing, the, the contentment, the fulfillment that can come from this book. So, start with me again in chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, the first part of verse 5. And it says this, it says that this letter is from John, the Apostle John, and it's to the seven churches in Asia. Now, when we think of Asia, what do we think of? What's the major country in Asia that we might think of? Like Russia, yeah, we think of Russia. We maybe think of China or India. We're like, well, is, is this a letter to like Vladivostok? Or, you know, where, where is this letter going to? Well, we need to understand something about when it says the churches in Asia, it's really talking about Asia, the province of Rome. So it's like Asia was a state within the Roman Empire, and it is Asia Minor now, or what we uh, would, would recognize as the area of Turkey. So right there in orange, we see Asia, the province in the Roman Empire, and it contains seven churches. And so we see in, in verse 4, in the very beginning there, it says that this letter is to seven churches. Now, funny thing about the number of churches in Asia Minor, there were a whole lot more than seven. In fact, if you remember, as we go back earlier in 2023, we studied the letter of Paul to the church in Colossae, the Colossians, we studied that. Colossians was actually written to a church in Asia Minor, in this same province. So there were many other churches. There's a church in a place called Hierapolis. There's, there's churches all over here that are not mentioned in this text, but it's written to seven churches specifically. We, if you look ahead, you can see it's Ephesus, Smyrna, Smyrna Pergamum, Pergamum, easy for you to say, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So these seven churches. Now, if there are more than seven churches, why did Jesus want to send a letter through the apostle John to just seven churches? Well, it's important that as we get into Revelation, we understand something about numbers. Not the book in the Old Testament, but about the symbology or the symbolism in the numbers of Revelation. And so we're going to find out that all through Revelation, numbers play a significant role as we interpret the signs and the symbols and the things that we read in this text. And so as we unfold and, and, and look into Revelation, it's, there's some numbers you need to keep in mind. First, the number three. Anytime we see three things, it, it is usually in reference to God or the Trinity. We're going to find actually as we look through this letter, and, and it's actually already happened, that John will repeat things in groups of three over and over again. We'll see three, three, three. In fact, in just the section that we looked at in chapter uh, one, verses four and the five, to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and is to come. Three. And also from the seven spirits before the throne and from Jesus Christ. So you are greeted by three. 
and then in describing Jesus, the, uh, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Three. We see three reiterated over and over again. And it's in, in Revelation, when we see three, it is oftentimes and most often pointing back to God. And so then we have other numbers. Num- the number four, we're going to see in Revelation, the number four is going to be repeated a number of times. And when we see the number four, it is in reference to creation. We're going to see four winds, four corners, four angels. The four living beasts that are around the throne of God represent all of creation that worships him in perpetuity. So the number three is about God. The number four is about creation. The number six, when we see six in the text or a a variant of six, it's going to be related to either mankind or sin. Now, most of us are familiar with the number of the beast. What is it? Six, six, six. We're all waiting for the tattoos to start showing up, right? Um, But but it is six, the number of man, sinfulness, rejection of God, repeated three times. It is a false god. It is someone who is lifted up as though they were deity. And so we see here in Revelation, as we begin to look at numbers, we can understand the symbols of these numbers. And we already, without reading very far ahead, can begin to see it working out. The number seven, and since we started talking about numbers, it was all about this seven churches. There are more than seven churches in Asia Minor. Why just seven churches? Why just seven churches at all? There are by now hundreds of churches, if not thousands of house churches all across the Roman Empire that John could have been writing letters to. And so he writes a letters, though, to just seven churches because that is a symbol of a perfect communication. They, they perfectly represent the fullness of the church universal in their seven qualities and characteristics. And so these seven churches are representative of the full, perfect, complete body of Christ represented by thousands of churches all across the Roman Empire and hundreds of thousands and even millions throughout time. So we have these numbers. Then we get to the next number that's really significant, the number 10, which is a symbolic of completion or fullness. And so we'll see 10 a number of times here, and we'll see variations of 10 or multiples of 10. And when we see it combined with sixes and we see it combined with uh, other tens, we end up with this picture, this view of a complete and full representation. The number 12 represents the people of God. As we read ahead, if you were to read ahead to to chapter 4, you're going to see that there are 24 elders gathered around the throne worshiping God. And that is the number 12. How many times? Twice. Who does it represent? The saints of the Old Testament and the saints of the New Testament. Two twelves representing the fullness of the people of God worshiping him around his throne. And so the number 12 will always represent the people of God. We have multiples of 12 that will show up. Later on, there's going to be 144,000 that are sealed. Those of you who did well in math, what is 144? 12 times 12. 
12 times 12 is 144. It is a perfect representation. And what, guess what? 144,000 is 12 times 12 times 1,000, which represents in, in, in Revelation here, hugeness, according to Vadi Bakum. Or a trinity of tens. 10 times 10 times 10. A perfect, godly completion of his work. So 144,000, are there going to be 144,000 people saved? No, if we read into the numbers, it means that all of God's people, 12 by 12 times infinite and huge, are going to be saved. So we see that numbers are going to play a large role in Revelation. As we are trying to understand the symbology, the, the, the meaning behind what we're reading. So let's look now at, at, back at chapter 1, verses 4 in the beginning of 5. To the seven churches in Asia, John offers up to them and wishes upon them grace and peace. Grace is, of course, that unmerited favor from God. This is a traditional Greek welcome or greeting. And then peace is a traditional Hebrew greeting. And that peace is shalom. And if you remember, we've talked about it in the past, not in detail, but shalom or the idea of peace is about the fullness of God, the fullness of life. And so John is wishing to the churches, first these seven, and then these seven as representative of all of us, the favor of God and the fullness of God in their lives. So grace and peace to you from the one who is and who was and who is to come. Now, who might that be? Well, we'll talk about that in a second. So we've got the one who is and was and is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne. Wait, what? How does that make sense? We get this picture of like seven Caspers dancing around in front of the throne of God, maybe, you know, and, and uh, so we need to look into that a little bit. We need to understand. And then finally, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So we see a greeting from the apostle John to all the churches throughout time, grace and peace from the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's what we're going to see here as we look and try and understand what John is writing based upon what Scripture has already taught us. The one who is, who was, and who is to come harkens back to Exodus three fourteen, When God tells Moses who he is, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who reveals himself in the burning bush, he says to Moses, I am who I am. Now we might read that, well, what is that? How does that equal to the one who is, who was, and who is to come? When God speaks this, I am who I am, he speaks it to, to Moses in such a way that he is saying, really, I have always been, I am, and I always will be. And so anyone reading this letter from John to the churches who understood the Old Testament, and believe me, the early church did. Why? Because that's the scripture they had. When, if, if, if the Apostle John had gone to one of these seven churches and said, open your Bibles to, do you know where they would have gone? Somewhere in the Old Testament. Because they, they had the New Testament letters and they counted them as scripture, but they really focused in on learning the Old Testament in the early church and using the new letters to help them understand what the Old Testament taught. 
So John is hearkening back to the Old Testament and the revelation of the one true God, Yahweh, to Moses. So we see the Father here. And then the second thing we see is the seven spirits before his throne. If we know that the Father is sitting on the throne, the one who is and was and is to come is sitting on the throne, then before the throne are seven spirits. And we might go, what does that mean? And what's cool is we go back into to Old Testament prophecy. And, and in Isaiah 11.2, it says this about the, the Messiah. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. A spirit of wisdom and understanding. A spirit of counsel and strength. A spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. As we read that, we have in English six descriptions of the Holy Spirit. So you might go, well, how do we get seven? John and the churches in the first century would have used a translation of the Hebrew Bible called the Septuagint. If you look in your Bibles, there might be footnotes in there. You might see in your footnotes, LXX. That is 50 plus 20. That is the Septuagint. It is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible that Greek-speaking Jews and early Christians used to read the Old Testament. And in the Septuagint, guess what happens to Isaiah 11.2? There become seven descriptions of the Spirit of God as the translation moves from the Hebrew to the Greek. And so John is talking to people who would have been using the Greek version of the Old Testament. And when they read Isaiah 11.2 and it talked about the Spirit of the Lord, they saw seven descriptions of the Spirit of the Lord, where we see six in the English because our translation is based on the original Hebrew, they would have seen seven in their Greek Bible. And so John is very clearly telling them the seven spirits, the seven components of the Holy Spirit before the throne of God is found here in Isaiah. So when he talks about the one who is and was and is to come, he's speaking of the Father. When he talks about the seven spirits before the throne, who's he speaking of? The Holy Spirit. And then finally, he says, and from Jesus Christ. And those, the, that, that name is so rich. It is the man who is Messiah. The man who is God incarnate. And so John is telling us this letter comes to the churches from the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And together they speak to us and give us these truths so that we can be blessed. Now John goes on to describe Jesus this way. The faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. What what he means by faithful witness. If we want to know what God is like, to whom should we look? Jesus. Why Jesus? John tells us in his gospel in the first chapter that the fullness of the Father, all of the glory of the Father, dwelled in and was revealed by the Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, incarnate, is the most faithful and reliable witness of the goodness of God. You want to know how the Father feels about something? See what the Son says. You want to understand the application of what the Father has said in the Old Testament? Read what the Son has to say about it in the New. 
Jesus is the full and most faithful witness we have to the goodness of God the Father. He reveals to us the fullness of the Trinity. And then it says he is the firstborn from the dead. Now what does that mean? It means he is the first person to be resurrected. The first one to be raised up in a new body that is for eternity. Now, some of us might look at our scripture and go, well, actually, Lazarus, and then there was that little girl, and then there was that other person, and then there was lots of people the day Jesus died. Yes, they were resuscitated. They came back to life. Do you know what happened to every one of those people? They died again. But Jesus... He was resurrected. He was brought back. He came back to life, not to die again, but in a renewed, restored body. Exactly what the Father had intended for us from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. An eternal, incorruptible body. And so when we look at Jesus, we see the first one who came back to life, not just for a little while, but forever. And if he is the firstborn, what's the implication? There will be others to come who are born into the same types of bodies. Raise your hand if you're one of those, right? If you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he's the firstborn, but your new birth for eternity in a renewed body, restored to the glory that God intended for us all. If you've trusted in him as Lord and Savior, you're going to be born again like that someday too. He's the firstborn from the dead. And everyone who's gone before us in death will be raised up into new life as well. All those who've trusted on Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And it says, he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. We, we know what this is, right? It's 2024. That means here we are. It's been another four years. It's an election year. And we, I know everybody's so excited you're just like motivated. Let's go out and man, I, I've got somebody that I love. I'm ready to vote for them. I'm ready to, to just support them. I know that they are a godly, moral, trustworthy person that I can that I can follow after wholeheartedly. We know that, right? No. In fact, we, we look at even the people that we love and respect that get into politics. It's like something happens the day they get sworn in and they lose half their mind. And, and who, the, a man or a woman who was, was godly and trustworthy as soon as they get sworn in seem to be a despot seeking their own desires and their own good over the good of everyone else. And that can be discouraging, can it? The Christians in this day had a ruler who sought to destroy them. And not just in a sense of politics or money or, or you know, t- taking away their freedoms, but to Give them death. And so while we look at leadership and we're disappointed, when they looked at their leadership in this first century, it was leadership that longed for them to be exterminated. And so John is saying, Jesus is revealing from the Father through an angel to John, to us. Jesus is the king over every ruler. He is in charge. That's why when it says he's king of kings, there is no authority on this earth that can even stand against the authority of Jesus Christ. And so Revelation is giving us a picture as we get started here of just how blessed we are. 
We have a witness, Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God, who has revealed to us the fullness of the Father. He rose from the dead and promised us that if we believe on him as Lord and Savior, we too will come back to life. Death has no power. It has no sting. It will not be victorious, but he in and through us will be. And we know this is true because even today he is the ruler over every king of the earth. And there is no one who has greater authority than Jesus. And so we see this and we see who this letter is from and we see who it is that we've been given to worship, to bow down to, to, to love and exalt. And we should rejoice and find happiness in this. The king of all creation, the ruler of all, the Holy Spirit, the one faithful and true witness, the one who came back from the dead and will raise us up, the the ruler of all, he is our savior. As we look and and continue in the letter, verses, last little bit of verse five and verse six, to him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. If in reading that, that kind of felt like a little bit of a worship song, it's because it's meant to be. It's meant to be a pause in this introduction that is a doxology, a, a, a moment of praise and worship to the Savior who is a faithful witness, who rose again and is king over all creation. He loves us. He has set us free from our sins by his blood. He has made us kingdom and priests to God the Father. So we see not only is he someone amazing, but he's also done amazing things for us because of his love. Now, I don't know about you, when I look in the mirror, when I ponder who I am, when I'm in my quiet spots and times, and I look at my own heart, I don't know how God loves me. Like the Apostle Paul, and I've mentioned it before, the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 says, this is a, a trustworthy saying worthy of full acceptance. Christ Jesus died to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. And I got to stand up and say, Paul, I don't think you're the worst because I know I'm the worst. And that it's not a competition, but it's just, if you knew my heart, I don't know how God loves me. When we're honest with who we are on the inside, isn't it a miracle that the God of all creation loves us? I don't deserve it. And I'm going to be honest, and and I, I don't mean to offend you, you don't deserve it either. Not a lick of his love do you deserve but he gives it to us in Christ Jesus. And not only does he love us, it says he has set us free from our sins by his blood. The blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin, renews everyone who would believe on him as Lord and Savior. We're going to partake of communion here in a little while. And as we drink the juice representing the blood of Christ, it reminds us that there, the payment for sin has been made. You have been set free from sin 
and slavery to sin. A lot of us think that, that, that we just can't get away. Listen, in Christ Jesus, you're already set free from those evil things that are in your heart and mind and in your practices that plague you and drag you down. Isn't that cool? We see who he is and now we're beginning to see what he's done for us. He's made us a kingdom. Look around the room. This is the kingdom of God. And you go like, well, poor God. No, he chose us. He saved us. We are his kingdom to proclaim who he is to do the business of God here on this earth. And not only that, we're a kingdom gathered together, but also says we're priests. We're priests to God. In other words, we represent the world toward God. We lift him up in prayer. We ask for his grace and forgiveness. We pray for the people who need to be saved. But we also, as priests, represent God to the people. And we, when we walk out, we reveal to everyone around us, God within us, the Holy Spirit, the salvation that comes through Christ Jesus. And what should our response be when we know who God is and we know what he has done for us? To him be glory. Glory is the the great exaltation of praise. We want to lift him up as the most bright and shining thing in our lives. When we get a new car, what do we want to do? We want everybody to see it. Especially when it's still got that glint. You know, the paint's still shiny. It's like, yeah. I mean, you, you know, it doesn't matter what age you are. You want to go cruising. You want to go out. You want, it feels good, doesn't it? Ladies, some of you have had the privilege of, of getting um, an engagement ring. Right? You get one of those. What do you want to do? Do, do you don't even say anything, do you? You just walk into a room. Do you notice anything different about me? Right? I mean, I just, I've seen it. And, and why? Because you have something beautiful and amazing that's happened in your life, and you want to lift it up and allow everyone to see it. To Him be glory. May He be lifted up in our lives as the most prominent and precious thing that we have. And dominion. What does dominion mean? Rule. Authority. To him be all the lifted up praises. This most precious thing in our lives. And all the authority. He rules over us. In grace. In peace. And love. Right? We can see. We, we know who he is. We know what he's done. And he deserves to be lifted up. And given authority. For how long? Well, every Sunday morning at least, right? Maybe even a midweek Bible study. Two or three minutes before each meal. May he be given the glory and dominion. And and that would be a really long pre-meal prayer, wouldn't it? You've remembered all the missionaries at that point. No, not, not just in spurts, but forever and ever. Always every moment in our lives. Dr. Bruce Leafblood is a professor or was a professor at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Dallas, Texas. One of the six seminaries that our denomination sponsors and supports. And he said this, 
True worship happens when we set our mind's attention and our heart's affection on the Lord, praising him for who he is and what he's done. And so I want to encourage you to really hear this, this worship that's coming from the Apostle John meant for our hearts and minds as well. That now that we know who Jesus is and we understand what he has done, genuine worship should be flowing from our lives. That we continually lift him up and submit to his authority. Lift him up and submit to his authority. This is what genuine worship is. And we worship him for who he is and what he has done. Who is he? He is the faithful witness. When we look to Jesus, we can know truth. We can know life. We can know hope. When we see Jesus, we are not seeing some watered-down, weakened representation of God. We are seeing God incarnate. He is the firstborn from the dead. The significance of the resurrection is amazing. It tells us that what Jesus said and who he is and what he said he was doing and what he did on that cross, it's all true. Because Paul tells us God would certainly not raise up someone who was a liar. The resurrection is what proves Jesus is who he says he is. And we just had a, a few of us had the privilege of going to a little conference over in Finleyville earlier this week. And one of the preeminent apologists or scholars for the resurrection, Dr. Gary Habermas from Liberty University was there and telling us that there, there is so much evidence for the resurrection. That people as early as just a year or two after the date for the resurrection, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, they already are singing songs and reciting creeds, celebrating what he did on the cross and how his resurrection proves it's true. And if the resurrection is true, then Christianity is true. And everything we talk about, sin and our separation from God and our deserving of death and judgment is true. But also that God loved us and Christ died for us and rose again. It's all true if the resurrection is true. And there is so much evidence that the resurrection is true. He is the firstborn from the dead. And what does his resurrection also prove? 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us his resurrection proves that we will be resurrected as he's promised. And there will come a day, not where we'll just be in heaven experiencing the goodness of the presence of God, but that we will be brought back to this physical life in perfect, sinless, unbroken bodies to live that way for eternity as God created us to initially in the garden. And that he is the ruler of every king of the earth. So there is no one and nothing that should bring us fear or consternation. Not only is he all these amazing things, but he has loved us. He has set us free from sin. He has made us a kingdom. He has made us priests of God. So you see, we, we know who he is in our mind and we worship him. And we see what he's done for us. And in our heart, we respond with love and we worship him. 
True worship understands who he is and feels what he's done and responds accordingly. And, and so when, when John starts to talk about to him be all glory and dominion and forever and ever, amen. This is not just something to be glossed over and read quickly. It is a worship song to be paused over and just like, yeah. if you've ever felt the presence of the spirit, if you've ever worshiped genuinely, this one phrase is the time to really dive in and do it. John goes in uh, on to write this, chapter 1, verse 7. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. Some of your Bibles, as you read through them, they might have this section, verse 7, set apart, like indented, or it might be italicized, or it might be bolded. And as we read our, our Bibles in the New Testament, when we see the font change in some form or fashion, italics or bold or set apart, we need to consider that usually this means it's either a song or saying that the author has adopted and put into the letter, or in the case of like my Bible, when it's bolded, it means it's a quote from the Old Testament. Or it's an illusion from the Old Testament. So we read this and we see that John is not just saying, Hey, Jesus is coming back again, guys. It's going to happen. It's cool. But he's actually quoting the Old Testament here. And he's going back to the promises found in places like Daniel and Ezekiel. Daniel 7.13 says this. Uh, Daniel's talking about his experience and that vision he has. I continued watching in the night visions. And suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. And uh, that's actually not supposed to be Daniel. That's supposed to be Ezekiel somewhere, and I can't remember where. So shame on me for copying and pasting and forgetting to change the reference. Let me look at my notes right here. Man, I'm embarrassed. Uh, let's see. Kingdom, priest, revelation, Daniel, Isaiah 19.1. That's that second quote. So sorry, too much copy and paste this week. But Isaiah 19.1 says a similar thing. Isaiah, I continued watch. Actually, I forgot to put Isaiah in. Man. All right. I'm out. Isaiah 19.1 says a similar thing, talking about the Son of Man coming on the clouds. When we see clouds in the Old Testament and someone riding on the clouds, it is usually God or the Spirit of God or the servant of God arriving to do the work of God. So he's quoting from the Old Testament, Luke is coming with the clouds. And then he says, every eye will see him. And he's quoting and alluding to Zechariah 12.10. Everybody's read Zechariah, right? Yeah, there's a couple of us. Uh, look, read through the Bible. You'll get a lot of these cool things. Zechariah 12.10 says this, Then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the house of David and the residents of Jerusalem. And so God is making a promise to his people. And he says, And they will look at me, or look at me whom they pierced. Who is that? Jesus. It's a clear prophecy of Jesus. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly for him as one weeps for his firstborn. 
Zechariah prophesied that there would be a time when everyone would see Jesus and would mourn over his death. And John, he takes that and he says, the time is coming. He will come on the clouds promised like it's promised in Daniel and in Isaiah. And everyone will see him. They'll see the one that was pierced on their behalf. And they will all mourn over him when he returns. Why will they all mourn? Those who know him in thankfulness and and, and in just brokenness for what he's done. And those who do not know him because judgment is on the way. He says, so be it. Amen. Now, those of you who know what amen means, so be it. This is, it's like he's saying, so be it, so be it. Well, interesting thing here. If you remember earlier in the greeting, John greets them and says, grace and peace to you. Grace was a typical Gentile or Greek way of greeting. Peace was a Jewish way of greeting. Those two together represent the fullness of the church, the saved Gentiles and the saved Jews. As he finishes this statement, he essentially says, amen in Greek and then amen in Hebrew, representing it's true, it's going to happen for both Jews and Gentiles. And so as we look at this, and we're going to kind of wrap up here because I'm approaching noon, but I wanted to cover this one last thing. We've, we've quoted some Old Testament truths. We, we've quoted the Old Testament, and we see that the Old Testament is already in the first chapter of Revelation being brought in. And John is showing us how Jesus and his coming return will fulfill Old Testament prophecy. The amazing thing about Revelation is it has the most Old Testament of any New Testament book quoted or alluded to in its pages. Most of us would think, well, it's got to be one of the Gospels that, that quotes the most Old Testament as they quote Jesus fulfilling prophecy. And there's lots in many of the Gospels. But Revelation is the book in the New Testament that has the absolute most New Testament quotes or allusions or citations. There are 405 verses in Revelation, and there are 676 Old Testament connections. Now, that's kind of a middle-of-the-road uh, number. Some scholars look at it and say there's only about 300. Some scholars read Revelation and find over 1,000 Old Testament allusions, which means it, it kind of uh, refers back to the Old Testament without directly quoting it or references or parallels. This was the kind of middle-of-the-road conservative view. So that means out of every verse in Revelation, on average, there are one and a half Old Testament references. Now, we know that averages work out where some verses will have none and others will have multiple or more than two. And so 405 verses, when we talk about the Old Testament, uh, we, we see not just like direct quotes, but also allusions. In other words, it looks back and, and uses imagery from the Old Testament, echoes kind of the same kind of picture or parallels where it looks just like something else that happened in the Old Testament. What, what parts of the Old Testament are included in Revelation? 
Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Psalms, Exodus, and Genesis are the most quoted and alluded to in the book of Revelation. So we've already seen Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel quoted in some of the things that we've looked at today. So we see those prophets, but also the Psalms, the Messianic Psalms, see how they speak of Jesus and sing about Jesus are quoted and alluded to. Exodus, the whole Exodus journey, the plagues are included in pictures and references in Revelation. And then Genesis and the picture of creation. The only Old Testament books that are not referenced in the book of Revelation are Ruth, Ecclesiastes, and Haggai. So there are only three books from the Old Testament that are not referenced in Revelation. The reason we struggle to understand Revelation is because we don't know our Old Testament. And so we're going to be working as we go through this to try and see the Old Testament references the direct ones, to try and understand the Old Testament symbology and allusions and parallels so that we can read Revelation the right way. So that when we see a passage like this, when we see verse 7 of chapter 1, look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. We don't go, oh, that's nice. We see and say, that's a direct fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. This is so cool. Last word. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who was, or who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. This last little phrase contains references to Isaiah 44, 6. This is what the Lord, the King of Israel, and its Redeemer, the Lord of Armies, says, I am the first and I am the last. There is no God but me. Alpha and Omega. Do you know what Alpha and Omega are? The first letter and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last. I'm the one who sums it all up. And not only that, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, if you remember, is a reference back to Exodus and the burning bush. And then the Almighty. And many of us are familiar with this name of God, the Almighty. It is El Shaddai. Right? You liked Amy Grant? El Shaddai, El Shaddai, Er Kam Khan Adonai. Right? So we, we all sang that in the 80s. But um, uh, what a great worship song. That was like one of the three that we did in the 80s. Um, but but that, it's a direct reference back to the Lord Almighty the God of the Old Testament. And this is, this is the Father speaking in summation. So finally, Revelation. What's, what's it mean to us today? It's meant to be a blessing for the church. Brothers and sisters, I want you to read Revelation. I want you to hear the sermons and I want you to, with me every week, find where we can obey. The one thing I picked out this week that I saw beyond a shadow of a doubt when it comes to obedience is worship Jesus. Is your life a life of understanding who he is and what he has done for you and exalting him, glorifying him and submitting yourself to him in worship? Or are you just going through the, going, going through the motions? Yeah, I'm saved. I'll go to heaven someday. Things are cool. Jesus calls us 
Scriptures call us to know Him and to love Him and to worship Him with all that we are. Now, what does that look like? Well, it's going to be a little different for all of us. It starts, though, in a service like this. Sing with all of your heart. Mean the words that you sing. Understand what you're saying. Don't just read the words off the screen and mumble them. You make beautiful things. You make beautiful things. Right? I mean, you get the picture. You know who you are. I've been there. I've done that. Worship starts with just singing wholeheartedly what you believe. It continues with studying his word with excitement. Changing maybe how you eat, what you drink, what you listen to, what you watch. Count him as worthy in all things. I want to encourage you, like like John tells us, look forward to his return. Look, he's coming back. And that's a good thing for those who believe. But it's judgment for those who do not. So let's get more people on the believing side of the equation as we share. And then finally, constantly, forever and ever, recognize the sovereignty of God in all times and places over everyone. There is not a single place on this planet where Jesus Christ is not in absolute control. Period. And, and that's a big deal because what it means is when we pray, we have to trust him. It means when we see the world going what we think is sideways and out of control, we know that his hand is in it and it's going to be okay. When we're asking for him to save someone that we love, he can. When we're asking him to forgive our sin because of the promises he's made, he will. He's king over all of it. So constantly recognize the sovereignty of God in all times and places over everyone. A way that we get to worship, a way that we get to look forward to the return of Jesus, a way that we recognize his sovereignty over our lives and the life of our church is to partake together of the Lord's table of communion. And so I want to invite everyone who's here today who has trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and followed after him in believer's baptism that you are welcome at the table. You are welcome to come and partake of the body and the blood represented in the bread and the juice. And don't do it as a way of just doing it. But as you take the bread and the juice today, I want you to remember who he is And what he has done for you. He is the faithful witness. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is the ruler of all. And he has loved us. And set us free from sin. And made us a kingdom. And made us priests of God. And so as you partake today. Of the bread and the cup. Will you remember these things? Will you worship him. As he deserves? Will you submit yourself once again to his kingship and then look forward along with me and believers all throughout history to his coming return let's pray and bless the elements and prepare our hearts to partake of them father god we thank you for today we thank you that you are the one who was and is and is to come 
We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you equip and give and sustain. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the king over all. We thank you that we've been loved, that we've been set free from sin. We've been made part of a kingdom, priests, to represent you to the world. Thank you, Lord God, three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Today, may we worship you in ways that we have yet to do so in our lives. May we release and let go and genuinely lift you up in glory and submit to you in dominion. And as we partake of this bread and this cup, May we celebrate what you've done for us, Lord Jesus. We pray that you would bless it, that even as we eat it and drink it, we would remember your sacrifice for us. And that we would feel your presence and know your resurrection. And remember our freedom from sin and worship you. So please bless these elements. May we experience you genuinely through them. We confess to you our sins and our brokenness and ask for forgiveness and prepare our hearts as we come to your table. Make us clean by your promise as we confess so that we can eat and drink in celebration. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. So that same night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the, the bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he invited them to eat because that was his body that was given for them. And a little bit later, he took the cup and he blessed it. And he said, this is the cup, it's the new covenant established in my blood. And I want you to drink it. And every time you drink it, to remember me. And so this morning, I want to invite you up to receive the elements, the the bread and the cup. And we're not going to play any music and we're not going to do anything flamboyant or splashy. Instead, in silence, in honor of the king, would you come and receive your elements and then return to your seat or return to uh, the, 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 the front and just pray. But on your own time, take a few moments and, and thank the Lord for what he's done and receive the body in which Jesus paid the price for your sin in thankfulness and receive the the blood, the cup by which your sins are washed clean and the promise is sure through the covenant of his blood that your salvation is there. It's going to happen and it's happening right now because of what Jesus did for us. So if you would come forward, take the elements, return to where you'd like to partake of them And here in a few moments, we'll close together in worship, in song. Remember who he is. Remember what he's done for you as you partake of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ.